Wealth obtained from empty effort dwindles, but the one who gathers with his hand abounds. That was Proverbs 13:11, and you are listening to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. This week will be a great episode for any of you who are fans of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm using part of the magician's nephew as an illustration for something that I think God might be doing, has done, and will continue doing in the world. Something that relates to theonomy because of obedience and disobedience to God's commands. Plus, it's the magician's nephew. If you're like me, you love the world building and the history of the fictional world Narnia where the story takes place, as well as some of the other worlds that we get to explore in this book that the others do not even mention. This is one reason why I like Naruto. There's a lot of history of the world that seems almost irrelevant until it's not anymore. And don't hate on me for liking Naruto. I started watching it the night it first premiered in the United States almost 20 years ago until I eventually switched from the anime to the manga because manga is in general usually better. Especially with stuff like Naruto that seems to have a nearly equal ratio of filler to actual storyline episodes. So that enjoyment of history and world building is why I like The Magician's Nephew. If you go on and go in published order, you know a lot about the world by the point you get to The Magician's Nephew because it's the second to last one. But the world was just there. You didn't really know about how it came to be or how it got there. But reading The Magician's Nephew, you get to learn about the world of Narnia and how it was created by Aslan. But before we jump into all that, I want to ask you all to subscribe to Theana Money if you have not already done so. Check out older episodes if you haven't gone into the backlogs or haven't been listening long enough to catch them when they were new. And please tell your friends about Theana Money. Also, if uh, you want to support Theana Money, I don't run ads on Theana Money. I'll purchase ads on other podcasts, but I don't run ads on Theana Money because of the Dorian Principle. So I did an episode on that earlier this year with Conley Owens, who wrote the book by the same title. Basically, the general premise is ministry endeavors should not be charged for. They should be they should be uh, paid for by co-labor, not by reciprocity. Uh, Basically, ministry efforts should be paid for by people wanting to join you in your efforts by supporting you financially. And so because of that, if you want to support Theana Money, I don't run ads and make money off of it here, then uh, you can do so by going to my Bonfire page, the Bonfire Theana Money page, and buy some of the t-shirts and other stuff that is on there. Helps me make a little bit of money, and then maybe I can use money in the future, if that does pretty well, to purchase more ads and try to gain a wider wider viewership. So back to the topic. If you've read The Magician's Nephew, and if you haven't, and you're still listening to this point, I'm assuming you're okay with spoilers. If not, 
turn off this episode and listen to a different one instead because we're going to have some serious spoilers for The Magician's Nephew. So you have been warned. This is your last chance if you're doing something and you're trying to grab your phone right now to pause the podcast. So if you read The Magician's Nephew, then you probably remember the whole thing about the fruit that Diggory had to get near the end of the book. Let's go back over that part of it in case you've forgotten some of the details. Uh, so, in this edition I'm reading from right now, this is page 155. I'm sure there's a bunch of different editions with different pagination and different page numbers. You see well, said the lion. Now the land of Narnia ends where the waterfall comes down. And once you have reached the top of the cliffs, you will be out of Narnia and into the western wild. You must journey through those mountains till you find a green valley with a blue lake in it walled round by mountains of ice. At the end of the lake, there is a steep green hill. On the top of that hill, there is a garden. In the center of that garden is a tree. Pluck an apple from that tree and bring it back to me. Now, jumping about 15 or 20 pages ahead. When he had come close up to them, he saw words written on the gold and silver letters. Something like this. Come in by the gold gates, or not at all. Take of my fruit for others, or for bear. For those who steal, or those who climb my wall, shall find their heart's desire, and find despair. Take my fruit for others, said Diggory to himself. Well, that's what I'm going to do. It means I mustn't eat any myself, I suppose. I don't know what all that jaw in the last line is about. Come in by the gold gates. Well, who'd want to climb a wall if he could get in by a gate? But how do the gates open? He laid his hand on them, and instantly they swung apart, opening inward, turning on their hinges without the least noise. Turning forward a few more pages. Diggory was just turning to go back to the gates when he stopped to have one last look round. He got a terrible shock. He was not alone. There, only a few yards away from him, stood the witch. She was just throwing away the core of an apple which she had eaten. The juice was darker than you would expect and had made a horrid stain round her mouth. Diggory guessed at once that she must have climbed in over the wall and began to see that there might be some sense in that last line about getting your heart's desire and getting despair along with it. For the witch looked stronger and prouder than ever and even, in a way, triumphant. But her face was deadly white. White as salt. And then uh, jumping forward another uh, 20 or so pages. So we thought, Aslan, she said, that there must be some mistake, and she can't really mind the smell of those apples. Why do you think that, daughter of Eve? asked the lion. Well, she ate one. Child, he replied. That is why all the rest are now a horror to her. That is what happens to those who pluck and eat fruits at the wrong time and in the wrong way. The fruit is good, but they loathe it ever after. Oh, I see, said Polly. And I suppose because she took it in the wrong way, it won't work for her. I mean, it won't make her always young and all that. Alas, said Aslan, shaking his head. It will. Things always work according to their nature. She has won her heart's desire. She has unwearying strength and endless days like a goddess. But length of days with an evil heart 
is only length of misery, and already she begins to know it. All get what they want. They do not always like it. I, I nearly ate one myself, Aslan, said Diggory. Would I? You would, child, said Aslan. For the fruit always works. It must work. But it does not work happily for any who pluck it at their own will. If any Narnian, unbidden, had stolen an apple and planted it here to protect Narnia, it would have protected Narnia. But it would have done so by making Narnia into another strong and cruel empire like Charn, not the kindly land I meant it to be. And the witch tempted you to do another thing, my son, did she not? Yes, Aslan. She wanted me to take an apple home to mother. Understand, then, that it would have healed her, but not to your joy or hers. The day would have come when both you and she would have looked back and said it would have been better to die in that illness. So here we have an account in Narnia that Lewis based off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. To take from this tree of Narnia without Aslan's permission will bring suffering and misery. But to take of it with his permission brings happiness. With his permission, it brings blessing. But without Aslan's permission, it brings a curse. But notice how the promises of the fruit are always fulfilled, even when it is taken wrongly. However, the blessings of the promise come with the curses of partaking against Aslan's command. There is only blessing in taking it rightly, but both blessings and curses in taking it wrongly. Look at Jadis the White Witch. She partook of the fruit and still received the everlasting life and useful strength that it promised, because the fruit always works, as Aslan said. But it made her extraordinarily long life full of misery because she climbed the wall instead of coming by the gate, and she ate the fruit without permission of Aslan. Jadis experienced both blessing and curses from the fruit. We can see this analogy in many ways in our world. That's why this theme with the fruit and the magician's nephew is one we will probably return to with different topics in future episodes. But this time we are relating it specifically to economics in the United States. When we attempt to do something in this world in a way contrary to how God prescribed it, we might see benefits from that because God has created certain rules of nature and rules of physics that stay in place even when we sin, but they might also cause negative consequences alongside those benefits. If we tried to end world hunger with really cheap food that is high in calories but also really bad for you, we might get the benefit of fewer people starving to death, but also at the same time we will likely see other health issues beginning to arise from the really bad for you but high in calories cheap food. But today we are not talking about this analogy from the magician's nephew as it relates to food. We are talking about it as it relates to economics, because Theonomony is a Theonomic Economics podcast. First, I plan to talk about it in general, as in the principle, then we'll look at some specific examples. How this relates to economics is that we can do certain things in economics that go against either direct prohibitions of God and scripture or the good and necessary consequence of scripture. 
when we do those things, there are some benefits to us, to it, but there are also negative consequences because sin has consequences. There are curses and blessings. Just as Jadis disobeyed Aslan and was benefited by it, but with consequences that would eventually far outweigh the blessings, so we can do similar things with our economics. We can lie or cheat or steal or do other things prohibited in scripture, especially prohibited in God's law when it comes to economics. Though our sin might bring certain benefits, it often has consequences that far outweigh the benefits. For those who never repent and believe the gospel, sin always has the ultimate negative consequence of an eternity under God's wrath. But even in this world, there are often negative consequences for sin. And that includes economic sin. This could apply to the family level as we do our buying and selling with others as consumers or maybe with a small business. This could also apply to businesses that do what is wrong in order to make higher earnings or increase their stock value. This even applies to governments or government agencies that do what is wrong in the name of good, but cannot escape the consequences of doing wrong. One example of this is when companies lie to the public about their earnings or some other part of the business in order to boost their stock price. Sure, in the short run, the company gets the great stats and high stock price, but eventually that will come back to bite them. Even if they are never caught, we know that there is a perfect judge who accounts for all data without missing a single piece of evidence or overlooking any crimes. But in the here and now, these companies that do this on any large scale are often caught, and there are serious consequences to that. It could lead to their being forced out of business, whether legally from a government organization, from the SEC, or because they are sued and the amount is so great they have to declare bankruptcy and liquidate all of their assets. Or perhaps they are sued and able to weather it and stay in business, but that large expenditure paying their fines and penalties from the government, or the amount they are sued for, or to uh, whoever sues them, will cost them a lot of money, even when they are able to pay it and stay in business. And all of that doesn't mention the damage to their reputation. Even if the SEC and whoever may have sued them didn't put them out of business, consumers might not trust them anymore and not purchase the good or service they offer anymore and go elsewhere for it. So the damaged reputation could be the straw that breaks the camel's back of a company that does this and that makes them go under. All that to say, look at any company that has done something like this and got caught. Do a couple Google searches or DuckDuckGo searches and look at how much they had to pay in damages, not to mention the untraceable damages of lost revenue from the harmed reputation in the eyes of consumers. And you will see that the curses of disobeying God by lying on revenue to make yourself look good to the public far outweighs the benefits. The only ones who benefited off of this are the people who sold the stock while it was still super high before the uh, drop came or employees who left the company before the collapse started and depending on their level of involvement, they might even still have repercussions if they were part of the breaking of accounting laws. 
perhaps not for the random person who just owned some of their stock and sold it before the collapse, but never knew anything about it. But maybe for the employee who partook in this, knowing what he was doing and thought he was getting out of Dodge by leaving the company before it caught up to them. An example of this on the governmental level is anytime a government does something in the name of stimulating the economy that goes beyond its God-given roles and responsibilities for its sphere of sovereignty. Yes, I am beating this dead horse again. And by now I think the horse is gone and I'm just slowly making a crater by punching the ground where the horse used to be. But it is important so we address it a lot. Any of you who have been listening to Theana Money for any length of time are probably quite familiar with this topic, so I won't explain it again for the over 9,000th time. But if you are new and not familiar with this topic, listen to the episode earlier this year called Spheres of Sovereignty after you finish this one, and it will help what I'm about to say make more sense. When the government goes beyond the bounds God has given it, there might be an economic boom in the short term, and that short term might be a number of decades, but that country will eventually experience the consequences of its decisions and its national sin. It might continue doing whatever it did to stimulate the economy to try to push off those consequences as long as possible, but it can't break them forever. Even more than that, whatever it is doing to stimulate the economy, I'll get more specific in a bit, I'm being vague right now, so this can apply to many different situations. It usually has a dwindling effect, a dwindling return of economic benefit as time goes on. So the government has to do more and more of whatever it is doing in order to stimulate the economy so that it can get the same results it got previously. In this way, the government's doing this is like a drug addict. Over time, the drug addict has to take more and more of his drug of choice in order to get the same high he had at the beginning because his body builds a tolerance to it. Over time, his body is so used to the drug that he doesn't know what it's like to be off of it anymore. Getting off the drug would be miserable and painful for him, and he might even have to wean himself off of it over time because quitting cold turkey could kill him. But as painful as withdrawal is... It is not as bad if he keeps going, because if he doesn't stop, he will eventually overdose and kill himself. He will eventually have to take so much to get the high that just a little bit used to give him that his body won't be able to handle it anymore and he'll OD and die. The United States economy is similar in many ways. The government sees some issue in the economy and does something to fix it something that probably goes beyond the responsibilities of its God-ordained sphere of sovereignty. Whatever this involvement is, it does help, but now people get used to things being like this. So if the government ever pulls back, people will get hurt because they're relying on the government to do this. Thus, the government has to keep doing it and eventually start doing even more because the same level of involvement doesn't do as much as it used to. Eventually, no matter how much more involvement the government does, it doesn't help anymore, but the negative drawbacks are still there. Maybe they were hidden from view before, but that won't be the case much longer, and the entire system will come crashing down. There are still blessings promised in whatever fake version of good economics 
the government is trying to do, but the curse of doing it in a way God did not prescribe will come to pass. Also, some of these might be in part the church's responsibility. The church should be the one caring for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the destitute. But when she fails at her role and responsibility here and the government steps in, then these negative results of the government taking on this responsibility of the church will arise. And both church and state are at fault for not properly obeying God. So what are some of the ways the U.S. economy is doing this specifically? One example is increasing the money supply. You might be wondering how I am viewing this as something the government does that is disobeying to God. You may be also wondering how this has both benefits and negatives. But more than that, you are wondering how I consider it disobedience to God in some form or fashion. This is something that Gary North has done much to help me understand. Scripture condemns artificially inflating a currency. We see this in Isaiah 1.22 with Ezekiel 22.18-19. So let's read Isaiah chapter 1 verses 21-23. through 23. How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who is full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink your wine diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and pursues rewards. They do not execute justice for the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. On this topic, Gary North writes on page 7 of his book, An Introduction to Christian Economics. Currency debasement is the oldest form of monetary inflation. It is not surprising that Isaiah should, in the same verse, refer to the debasement of silver and the debasement of wine. Monetary inflation is often accompanied with a disastrous fall in the quality of economic goods, especially in the last stages of inflation. So increasing the money supply helps an economy in the short run because business starts booming. Stock prices are rising, house prices are rising, GDP is rising, a lot of things are rising. But purchasing power is rising at the same rate, not faster. So your dollar doesn't go uh, further now. You might be thinking, oh, like, you know, everything's going up. Like, we're, we've got all this money we didn't have before. Now we can buy way more things with what we make than we did previously but when uh, things are growing up in price at the same time your wages are going up your purchasing power how much each dollar can purchase remains the same and actually maybe it even gets lower because of what people refer to sometimes as sticky wages that wages often take longer to rise with inflation than your prices of goods and services do this devaluing of a currency by artificially increasing the money supply by inflation has drastic consequences over time. Like I just said, your purchasing power probably declines. Your weaker currency doesn't do as well in international markets. Other nations may not trust yours 
as much because of what you are doing to your currency and other negative consequences as well. Nations that do this are able to inflate away their debts so that they are now much easier to pay off than they used to be, but at the cost of inflating away the savings of their citizens. That $1 million sitting in your savings for retirement is worth half that by the time you actually retire. But it was worth that much, that full amount, when you put it into your IRA. So you felt the cost of putting aside a million dollars, but you only received the benefit of pulling out 500 k Now, the increase from investments might equal inflation, or maybe even a little bit more, and keep purchasing power the same, but the point of investments isn't to keep your purchasing power the same during inflation, but to increase your purchasing power as the amount of money increases. There's more I could go into here, but I still have a lot to cover and I don't want to make this episode too long. Maybe in the future I'll do an entire episode or episodes on some of these specific concepts to dive deeper into them. Another example is welfare. There's a real problem of people struggling to make ends meet, one that the family and the church spheres of sovereignty should solve by helping those who are able to work find jobs and supporting those unable to provide for themselves, such as widows, orphans, and the genuinely physically disabled. I added genuinely because there's a difference in definition between what governmental welfare systems consider disabled beyond the point of being able to work to provide for oneself and truly being that disabled. I have a friend who has had both legs amputated due to a genetic issue with the bone structure in his shins. He was born with it. There was not really anything they could do to fix it. So he had one leg amputated above the knee and the other below the knee. He knows he could get a lot of welfare money from the government, but he refuses to take it and works hard to provide for his wife and their son. But not all are like that. Someone might have much more serious medical issues that makes that person truly unable to care for himself. When the church and family stopped providing for these people as much as they had before, the government was happy to step in. There were some benefits as fewer people were worried about starving to death at first because of welfare benefits, but because financial generosity is not one of the responsibilities of the minister of the sword, there are curses as well. Many of the issues we see today in the black community in America is downstream of welfare. It's not because of a legacy of slavery. If you don't believe me or want to call me a racist for saying that, read a Thomas Sowell book and have fun calling him a racist because he's black. Though these days, white people can use racial slurs for black people if the white person is liberal and the black person is conservative, and for some reason that's alright. And if you don't believe that, watch the documentary Paint the Wall Black about Juan Riesco and Nini's Deli in Chicago. When the government pays people to stay at home, many will do their best to keep that going as long as possible and push off having to return to work. When the government pays single mothers more than it pays two parents who are both out of work, that incentivizes fathers to not provide for their children. It makes bad men think it is okay to get a girl pregnant and then abandon her because the government will take care of her as a single mother. 
it can even make more respectable men who would like to stick around instead of leave because if he struggles to keep a job, he knows that his girlfriend can get more from the government than he is able to provide. Because if she is single, then she gets the better welfare check, basically. And so he feels she is better off without him and leaves her, thinking that what he is doing is best for her. And what is the result of that? It is children growing up without fathers. When children grow up without fathers in the home, issues and culture multiply. Work ethic tends to go down while premarital sex and children born out of wedlock tends to go up. And those two things together are major causes of poverty or at the very least lowering the potential standard of living a person could have. Now look at where we are as out of wedlock births are higher than ever in American history and the number of children living without both mother and father in the home is also skyrocketing. Some of them because of single moms and some of them because of homosexuals pretending that what they are doing is marriage. The negative consequences of that is much greater than the benefits of the government taking care of some people who needed help. What would have been better is if the government had never gotten involved in welfare and instead left it to the churches and individual citizens. I don't want the government to do anything more than give tax credits when I donate to 501c3s that help the poor. And even that I wouldn't want if we had a more biblical tax system in the United States. Another example, and one I really look forward to covering in this episode, perhaps because the first two seem to be addressed more often and than this last one in my experience, is lowering interest rates. Sometimes in order to stimulate the economy, the Federal Reserve will lower interest rates. What that means for you is that when you go to your local bank for a loan, the interest rate you are charged is lower, that price of borrowing money. There are a lot of other details that go into that and why it works the way it does. Details I'm skipping over now, but if some of you want me to do an episode getting into the nitty gritty of all that, just let me know by commenting it on social media or PMing me. The interest rate that the Fed strongly influences plays a major role in how much you pay in interest for taking a loan from your local bank. Now, if the interest on business loans was completely set by supply and demand, I wouldn't be bringing this up now. But the Federal Reserve has such influence over this by its economic black magic that I think it makes sense to bring it up this example in this episode. Lowering the amount of interest that consumers will pay when they take loans from banks does help the economy. If you're considering doing some work on the house and you'd have to take a 10K loan out to do it, you might look at the interest rates on that 10K loan and decide it is best to wait and save up the $10,000 or save up part of it and take a loan up for a smaller amount. By the way, if it is purely cosmetic and won't lose you any money by waiting to fix it, then you should probably just save up the 10K anyways. A way that it could cause you money to not fix it right now is if uh, you're getting some sort of damage repaired and that the more you push off getting this damage repaired, whether it's 
damage you cause or just damage of your house growing older in a fallen world and entropy. If it's something we're pushing off, fixing it now will cost you more money in the long run because of uh, issues compounding. Then if you need to take the loan, take the loan and get it fixed and do it like yesterday. And the interest on the loan is worth it to not further damage your house. Or if it's like your HVAC goes out and it's 10000 to get a new one, but you'd rather pay that and take a loan out on it than go a year without heating and cooling. Also, a lot of times for stuff like that, you can get a loan that's interest-free for 12 months. So you can still pay it off without interest. Or maybe you're considering starting a business venture or expanding into new territory with the business you already have. Or maybe buying machinery that will make it cheaper to produce your goods or some other reason a business or person about to start a business will want to take out a loan. You do your forecast and you come up with a break-even point for when, uh, you know, a break-even point when you will have uh, made back your initial expenditure. You're looking at, okay, if I take enough money out of the business for myself to live, at what point will I have putting the rest of it back onto the loan except for what amount I put back into the business? Will I have the loan paid off and be able to start taking all of the money for my own income other than what I put back in the business and start having a good income for myself. So let's say you do that math with the current interest rates, it's four to six years. Four years if things go really great, six years, maybe even seven if they go really bad and most likely probably somewhere in between. And after all that's done, after that four to six years, this business will become really profitable for you because you're no longer paying down the loan. But in both of those scenarios, Let's consider interest rates drop, so the loan is now cheaper for you. Maybe with the new lower interest rates, you as the homeowner decide to go ahead and do that work on your house because now your payment to repay the loan each month is $50 less. And you can even still pay that $50 each month even though you don't have to to pay off your loan sooner. Or maybe you as the business owner decide that this business venture is too risky. You are just not confident that it will be received well and maybe the break-even point is way further in the future than you first thought it would be or maybe it just won't do well and you'll never even break even on it or maybe not go that far. You just think the break-even points maybe a year or two further down the road than you thought it was or you were right in your forecast. You're pretty sure you're right but that's just too far away for you. But at these new lower interest rates now your break-even point is a year sooner when uh, you were looking at four to six years for your break-even point. You weren't sure if it was worth the risk because of how often business ventures fail. But now when the loan's a lot cheaper because the interest rates are lower, now your break-even point is three to five years, you decide to go ahead and do that. You're willing to take the risk now and take that loan now that the cost to borrow money is cheaper, now that the interest rate is lower. Consumers purchasing goods and services and businesses starting new business ventures especially successful ones, all of that stuff is good for the economy. Money gets passed around between hands and the nation as a whole is better off. So there's benefit to lower interest rates, but it isn't for the government or an agency that technically isn't part of the government to decide that. It is for the invisible hand of supply and demand to decide. But this can also go downhill over time. When interest rates first start getting messed with and kept artificially low to encourage that person or business to take that loan, 
It can be good as people with good ideas purchase things that stimulate the economy. But then there is pressure to keep the interest rate low to keep the economy from tanking. Since it is now using this drug to keep itself afloat and the druggie will relapse if he comes off of it. So he stays on the drug and takes even more drugs. The economy isn't doing as well anymore, even with these lower rates. So they go even lower. Then this happens again and again. Eventually, rates are so low and have been so low for so long now that people who shouldn't take loans begin to do so. That business that has a risky idea, so so risky, it is just plain a bad idea and uh, not a risky but potentially really smart idea, but just like a risky idea, low chances of good payoffs, just no one should take this business venture this person is doing it or maybe it's a decent idea he's just going about it in a very poor way but then people like that start going ahead and taking a loan because the cost of borrowing money is so cheap right now and that, that's not to say that's all the people taking loans at this point there's still the people with good ideas or the occasional bad idea that manages to work out but the percentage of bad ideas being taken because loans are so cheap right now is growing the man who shouldn't buy his house, buy a house right now, he decides to buy one because the mortgage rates are so low. And then he loses the house within a handful of years. That business owner I mentioned a little bit ago with the bad idea takes out the loan and ends up not even being able to repay his loan because his business venture fails before he even made enough money to pay the loan back. And this is when we get to the overdose part of that druggy analogy. Things are just going haywire. The economy is doing a uh, is receiving a lot of damage to it because of this thing that at one point was helping the economy just kept going downhill, downhill until now it's hurting the economy. This is the curse in eating the apple without Aslan's permission. When the economy is tanking because of this, those who started the process to begin with might regret it. Or they might not because they've been out of their position for a while now, maybe even decades, and they're enjoying the retirement, perhaps in a different country to avoid what is happening in the one that their policies damaged over a number of decades and is now seriously damaging. And so the latter end is much worse than all of the benefits that were happening at the beginning of doing this messing with the economy. So like I said, it is the curse of eating the apple even though it still has its benefits and there's a lot more i could say here but this at this point is already probably one of the longer episodes i've had in a while so i think i'm going to cut it here but this theme of eating the apple without aslan's permission is one i think i will return to in the future if y'all enjoyed it the apple always fulfills its purpose but if eating wrongly that has dire curses along with those benefits. Curses that far outweigh the benefits. So that was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. More than sin.
Oh, you satisfy my soul.